Yo, yo, yo. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Isaac. And this is your boy, Bryce. And we are Brothers on Tennis. And folks, man, I tell you, we are excited to once again talk to someone behind the scenes in regards to the King Richard movie that we hope everyone who is seeing this has already seen the movie. Um, but man, we are so looking forward to talking to this gentleman today. Uh, we've got uh, Ray, Ronaldo, Marcus Green, and Bryce. I know that you've got a little bit of information to share with our listeners and viewers about our guest. So I'll pass it to you to share, my man. Yeah, I'm, I'm particularly excited to talk to our guest today. And like you said, Ray, um, because he was the director of the King Richard film. And anybody that knows anything about the filmmaking process, you know, the director is like the guy that kind of has the keys to the kingdom, right? I mean, he's, he's the conductor of the orchestra. Um, you have all these great musicians around you, but you are the one responsible for bringing it together and making the sound. And there are so many questions that we as not only movie fans, as not only Williams family fans, as not, not only as being tennis fans uh, and tennis players that we are, we have a gazillion questions for this guy. So without further ado, we'd like to welcome Mr. Ronaldo Marcus Green to Brothers on Tennis. Welcome, thank Ray. You thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Awesome, awesome. So Ray, we just want to first of all get a little bit about you, not even a little bit, a lot. We want to understand, you know, your background, where you grew up. Talk to us about, you know, how, how, how you came up. Man, that's a long story, y'all. <laughs> um, definitely longer than the King Richard movie. But, um, you know, look, I, I was born in the Bronx, New York, uh, you know, where both of my parents grew up. And then I was raised in Staten Island, New York. Wu-Tang, you know, <laughs> all the way, met the man's mom, lived around the corner. Um, and we just had a had a had a simple, you know, simple, humble upbringing. You know, my, my parents got divorced young and my dad actually raised my brother and I. So from the time I was eight, we were in a single parent household with my my black father, uh, who very much like Richard Williams wore those short shorts and thought he was raising uh, raising baseball champions. That's what he was trying to raise. So. From a very, very early age, we were, you know, we were playing baseball pretty competitively, uh, you know, for the first third of my life, honestly, I, I made it as far as college ball and uh, had a couple tryouts and, and, uh, and then, you know, had to get a job like everybody else. <laughs> so uh, very much like you saw Richard's story, you know, they were teaching the girls education and that was really the fallback plan. And, and my dad who was an attorney by trade, also was making sure that while we were, you know, playing ball, that we were making sure that the that we were we were studying and keeping keeping the books up. And so my brother Rashad Ernesto Green is a filmmaker. Uh, he made a film in 2011 called Gun Hill Road, um, and it was really my brother that started, you know, the filmmaking, you know, family. You know, he was out there doing it first. My first career was actually in education. I started teaching um, kindergarten through fifth grade. I had graduated with a master's degree uh, from Fairleigh Dickinson University. 
And after baseball didn't work out, I, I thought, okay, I'd become a superintendent. And so I started teaching. I really wanted to, you know, go back to a community like I grew up in and, and, and try to give back. And, um, you know, look, like many of us, I had an undergraduate student loan and I was just doing the math. And unfortunately, teaching was just like, man, it's going to be like 20 years before I could you know, break even. And just, and, and, and that thought just kind of like hit me when, of, of course, I, you know, was a young man and wanting to date and do things and I can't move. I can't move around. <laughs> um, so I quickly started to think about maybe there's some other opportunities that still allow me to use my education and, and, and maybe pay off this loan a little sooner. And so I, I got an opportunity to work on Wall Street in diversity and inclusion for AIG. Um, and this is before the financial crisis hit. So I transitioned from education to, to financial services. And I did that for a couple of years, financial crisis hit. And of course, what's the first thing they blame is not the CDCs or anything, you know, not, not those things. They blame diversity, right? Like that's the thing that brought down. Uh, so the department was cut and I was scrambling, looking for a job. And uh, fortunately I landed within the company, but in a different department, I was working in product development. And, and then at that point, I was a young man. I had paid off my undergraduate student loan, but I felt like I was floating a little bit. I didn't feel like I had found the thing that was you know, supposed to be for me forever. Um, and all along, I have this brother that was exploring this life as a filmmaker, and I see him creating his art and then traveling the world on his art. And I thought that that was a really, really cool um job you know it can can you actually support yourself uh you know doing the arts and he showed that he could and so at that point i decided to apply to film school nyu graduate film tisch school and i got in and uh in 2012 i left my job at aig which i was there almost five years and left my paycheck and took on another loan, <laughs> a much heftier loan. But I think at that point, I thought, you know, look, I have a brother that's doing it. I already had proven to myself that I could get to a certain level in, in the workforce and thought, okay, look, let me gamble on myself. Let me bet on myself now because I don't have any kids. I'm not married. You know, it was a good time in my life to take those, take that chance you know, I was getting a little too old to maybe, you know, if I waited another year, maybe not. And, and so I, I think timing was everything. I left that job. And, and at the time, I really wanted to write and produce. I was not thinking about directing. I was really thinking about really writing and producing other people's work. And that's what I did. As soon as I went into film school, I was sort of the de facto producer in the program. I was coming with this, you know, pedigree of working on Wall Street and had these finance guys. And I knew how to, you know, I knew how to kind of do that, that part of the job. And so, you know, I really started producing for my classmates, but NYU is a writing directing program. And so, you know, I had to hand in my homework and part of my homework was to make short films. And uh, look, you know, it's one of those things that I felt like a lineman who got an opportunity to quarterback. That's what it felt like to me. Um, and somehow I connected with a receiver downfield and the ball got in the end zone and be like, whoa, that lineman could throw, <laughs> you know, that's kind of what it felt like, you know, and when I, when I first started directing that, of course, everybody thinks they can direct, right? You know, everybody thinks they can act. Everybody thinks they can sing. Um, and you don't know until you try. You don't know until someone else really tells you like, eh, maybe you shouldn't do that. 
And I started throwing the ball. I started directing and people started telling me like, man, you should, you should do that. You should stick to that. You have a, you have a knack for it. And although I didn't necessarily believe it myself at the time, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't passionate about directing. I didn't know really what it, what it meant to be a director. I started to explore the, the idea of what that would, what that would be like. And so I started to take it a little bit more seriously in my second year. And I went to South Africa. I made a short film called Stone Cars. And that short film got into Cannes and competition. And that film really opened up the, the door for me as a director. Um, and I really had to put my focus and emphasis on, on, on doing that full time. So I, I really put, I pushed sort of producing to the side, decided to, uh, to direct um full-time in my third year I made three short films one of them was called Stop which went to Sundance and Stop was the, the precursor to my first uh feature film called Monsters and Men and that was really the trajectory I I, I grew up an athlete I thought I wanted to be a baseball player that didn't work out I got a job my mom was a teacher I thought I'd follow that passion so, you know, I think like a lot of us, we, you know, you do what you're good at, you know, you kind of float and yeah, this seems pretty good. Like be happy with what you got. You got a roof over your head and clothes on your back. Like that's how we were raised, right? Like be, right. be content, you know, do, not, not, not to push yourself, but, but, you know, get an education, get a good job. And I did all those things. And I realized that like, there was more for me to give. Uh, to to not only to myself but to my community and, and and I'm so happy because I felt like yeah I just feel like now even with film I, I'm reaching far more students than I ever could have reached in the time that I spent as a teacher you know the microphone is louder it's bigger the the landscape is bigger and you know, maybe that was my path. It was, it was, maybe it was written. I don't know. Um, but I followed that intuition, uh, to where, you know, to, 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 to make movies and, uh, really, you know, Monsters and Men, you know, it premiered at Sundance in 2018. Uh, and that really set the tone for me as a filmmaker in the industry. You know, it was critically well-received, you know, Drake came on to the project as an executive producer. That's, I segued that that success into uh, directing Top Boy uh, and uh, three episodes of, of, of Top Boy and bringing that show back to Netflix. Um, so that was a great opportunity. And then from there into my sophomore film, Joe Bell with Mark Wahlberg, and then straight into the film that we're here to talk about, which is, uh, which is King Richard. And, and I don't get King Richard without any of those, without that path, without that crazy father that was teaching me how to play baseball, without dabbling in education without you know without any of those experiences I, I I don't even think I'm in the room for King Richard and so I think it took this sort of windy road me discovering my own voice as a filmmaker who I want to be as a person as a father as a husband and all these things in life that has sort of led me into that room to meet with Will um and yeah I think you know when I got in there I felt like man I I think I think I deserve to be here. It was like a weird, like, I know I'm young, but like, I felt like I'd lived a life, you know? And I felt like I had a lot to say and I had a lot to give. And I think Will could feel that for sure. Um, I had a lot of respect for Richard Williams and the Williams family and, um, and what I knew of them. 
I knew that there was a lot more to learn and a lot more to discover, but I, I, I certainly understood how a black man could be misunderstood for being outspoken. I understood what it was like to grow up in a black household and we did things differently. We didn't slam doors. Uh, we didn't talk back. You know, when our parents said something, we listened. We might've mumbled under our breath, but we certainly did not let them hear it. And so those, yeah. those, I think there's just an understanding when you grow up in a certain neighborhood, even how you feel about your neighborhood. Yeah, it might be rough, but you're not like waking up every day nervous to go outside. Like that's that might be an outsider's perspective into how we view our own community and our own people. And so I think the vantage point as just a black filmmaker and understanding that and being the same age as Serena and understanding what it was like growing up in the 80s and 90s, like that's my error. So I felt like I was the perfect fit for the film, but of course that's in my head, you know, but you know, I needed to land the job. There were a lot of people that had to say yes. Um, but I came, I came into those meetings with that level of passion, um, with that level of conviction that I was the right guy for the job and, um, you know, to give me a chance and I, and I could prove myself. I, I have a question that kind of, if we take one step back as we're getting ready to go into King Richard, for, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask this question on behalf of our listeners. So I think everybody probably gets what a writer does. Now, you said you were originally pursuing the producer path, and then you transitioned to being a director. What is the difference between those two roles on a film? Well, you know, the producers typically, and it really depends on films, there are creative producers, people that are really involved in story and character and can be sort of counsel to uh to the project in a way that can help either unify the voice or make you know i would think about it as like the gm of a team you know you're not you're not the head coach you're not uh you're not you can come to the field you know what the field feels like you probably came up as a player and then you're really overseeing soup to nuts everything that happens you are solving most of the problems logistical creative like the producers are really i mean they're there to be the guiding light to make sure that we, we i don't know if you play for the mets there's a there's a culture right there's a culture of playing for a certain type of team and and in conjunction with your players and your management and your staff you're really building that culture and of course it everything stems from who you hire as your head coach because we all know that head coaches are the ones that cast their players to a certain degree and really set the tone for what it's like in the locker room how your players come to work every day their work ethic and look players have their own and they come and you have look you've got problem child you got other you know of course but that i would say in that in, in that context the producers are really there to 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 make sure things the players have what they need to do their job properly and i would say my job as a head coach right of course look i have an offensive coordinator you know i have a defensive coordinator i have lots of other departments that help me do my job very very well 
and but it's my job to hire those people to do their job really well. And it's my job to understand their job as well as they do their job so that I can do my job really well. And we are all in communication. And I think in any field, whether I worked on Wall Street or teaching, it's all about communication. And I think somehow my desire to be a superintendent led me to be sort of this superintendent, if you will, of this, of this film. You know, you're very much in control of the vision for the, the film. And vision is not necessarily driven by producers, right? Producers can find the IP and the project. They can even sometimes find the actor. Will was on the film before I was on the film. But vision is something that you can't, like they can't see that for you. You as the head coach, when it's on the goal line and it's, you have to make the decision to run or pass. You know, you get a lot of counsel. You got a lot of people telling you, we think you should throw. We think you should. And, and of course, everybody's right when they're right. But it's your decision. So it comes down to, it, it always comes down to the quarterback and the head coach, right? Like those are the people, and look, you get the glory, but you also get the bad, right? You're, you, you are the, the people responsible for the decisions in the movie, even if all the counsel is coming from many, many different places. And on a movie like this, you have the studio, you have Will Smith and his entity, you have lots of producers, you have actors, and so there's a lot of voices, right? And, and my job is to be the voice and the center of the film. That's my job. And that the play calls are coming from me and nobody else. So the GM, even if they tell me a play, is not, they're not telling it to Will. They're not talking to Will. They have to filter that through me. Everything comes through me. Every decision about pr production design, costume design, uh, you know, uh, yeah, wardrobe, hair and makeup, special effects, uh, who my crew is, my DP, my editors, my composer, every decision gets filtered through the director, every single decision. And so, you know, there's lots of conversations that happen at different levels and don't make it up to me, but by the time it's presented, it's my job to make the decision. And so we make several hundred decisions a day about how we build the film. Now I can't take credit because there are lots of people that are making great products, right? Like that's why I hire them to do that job. The costume designer is a genius. And so of course I'm relying on their genius to help me do my job. But if something doesn't feel right, something doesn't quite line up with the play call is when I have to call Audible or say, hey, I'd like this you know, or if I have an idea for something, then I tell them and then they can execute it. So it's a two-way street a lot of the times. For me, it really starts with the players. It starts with my cast. And that's a big part of what I do as a director is cast the movie. Because if I had 10 LeBron James, as an example, I know this is a tennis, but I didn't grow up playing tennis. So I have to use all these other sports analogies to talk about it. Um, but let's say I had 10 Venus Williams, you know, Venus also needs people that aren't identical to her to help her be, to help her be who she is. 
And I think that's how a team is made up, right? So I can't just have 10 people that do the same thing. I need, I need a, it's a balance. It's an alchemy in chemistry. That's really what it is. And, and okay, I've got Will Smith, who's this huge, massive star who needs to disappear in some way in my movie, right? He's playing a real life character. He doesn't necessarily need to look like the real Richard Williams. Um, you know, but he definitely needs to like not look like Will Smith. And who are the people around him that could essentially make a championship team? If, I, if I've got Jordan, I need Pippen, I need Rodman. And now it's up to me to cast those folks. And that's where Anjanou Ellis, Sanaya Sidney, Demi Singleton, uh, Michaela Bartholomew, Daniel Lawson, Layla Crawford, um, Tony Goldwyn, John Bernthal, that's where that alchemy comes in. And I'm working in tandem with my cast, uh, with my casting directors to help me cast the movie. And that's really a lot of what I, you know, a, a big part of the contribution that I gave to this film is the cast that you see. And one, I think, which is a brilliant cast, um, you know, nominated for a SAG ensemble and Will won last night. Um, it's a testament to their hard work and dedication, but it's, 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 it's also a testament to the film and to the alchemy of the film that no one person is bigger than the film. No one person is better than the team. We are all collectively in this together. And I think Will would say the same thing. If you're, you know, if you're of his status, it's all about the movie. It's all about learning to pass the ball and dunk when I need to, you know, you need me to put up 30. <laughs> you know, but I also need 30 boards. And, and that's, that's the, that's the kind of mindset as a director that I'm instilling in my players. Right. And we do a lot of off, I would say off season work, very similar to tennis where you're training all year round. Film is not something you just show up for. It's really, um, I treat it like a sport. So the, from the moment my, my film was cast, we did a lot of time becoming a family, you know, doing a lot of offset activities to really understand each other, understand how we work together, understand who needs to be next to who and what the relationships are like and how my players like to work. Okay, you like it like this, you like it like that. And a lot of it's behavioral. Um, you know, I learned that with students, not one, you can't teach broadly to a class. Um, you know, of course, you have to get all that information to all the students. But each child learns differently. Each student learns differently. Each actor needs to be, some actors like to be spoken to after a take, some don't. You know, some need space, some don't. And, and it's really kind of feeling out your players and giving them what they need and also getting what you need. Sometimes it's pushing those players. There are some players that like to be pushed. And oh, okay, like you like it, you know, and, and, and I grew up in a culture where we pushed our players. That was we pushed them, but we still loved our coaches. And, and I think there's a way to push and get something from your players because they believe in themselves. They believe in themselves and they believe in themselves because you believe in them. And I think people can feel that. Actors can feel that when they feel guided and they feel safe. Um, look, they're bringing the talent. I can't do that for them, but I can, I can certainly get talent out of someone. You know, um, and I think that's that's part of the job of the director to mine every inch of talent that you can get. 
you know, when you think about, you know, players that maybe on the surface don't have the, you know, they don't run the fastest 40, let's say, you know, maybe on the surface on paper, they're not, you know, LeBron, but they have massive skills that maybe other people didn't see, or maybe they weren't brought out on a certain team. I feel like it's my job to get that out of my performers, um, to get that out of my players and for them to believe that they have more in the tank to give me. And I think that's the kind of mindset that I go into set with. And, you know, I don't know, maybe I just have one of those faces that like, I can't lie either. Like people just know when you're like, eh, yeah, no, good job. Like, nah, bro, like I, I just, I, they know, they know when, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't get it and I want more and I just have that face. So I think people respect the honesty, the truthfulness and what actor doesn't want to play for a player that wants to get the best out of them. And, um, you know, that's sort of the role I feel as a director. And, and look, that's obviously one, one facet, one major facet, which is acting and performance. And then, of course, there's the visual style and grammar of the film, working with your DP and your production designer, um, and then working with your editor and music and post. And there's so many facets of the filmmaking process um, that you know, you develop. And so I would, I would liken it to every tennis player, right? A, a professional tennis player usually has, you have to have a great serve, right? You have to have a forehand. You have to have at least a forehand, if not, a, you know, a, a reasonable backhand. Like you need at least, you know, in baseball, we say, you know, to be a starting pitcher, you need, you need three pitches to be a starting pitcher. To be a mid-relief, you need two. You know, so and, and that's kind of how it is. And, you know, in baseball, right, if you're if you're an ace of a baseball team, you have four pitches. You can control a fastball. You can throw a curveball for strikes. You have another off speed pitch and then you can, you know, you can, you know, hit a, hit them with another junker or something else. You've got that fourth pitch, which makes you dynamite change up. And and that's sort of like. You know, the, the different levels to directing right so there's the strengths right i'd like to say i have a very good fastball you know and then you know okay like is my curveball just as good as my fastball that's my visual style you know but i would personally rank them in those categories for other people it's differently and for other directors they might there probably is no ranking it's all one and of the same everybody has a different approach you know ideally i'm a starting pitcher and all four pitches I can throw for strikes, I can spot them, and I can get batters out. And that means that, like, the visual style of the film is great, the tone is great, you know, my performances are great, and all across the board, there's no weakness in the directing of the movie. And, and that is my job to make sure that all of those things are working in concert, that I'm throwing all of my pitches for strikes, um, and that I'm getting batters out. And that's really kind of how I approach, you know, working with my costume designer, my, my different department heads in order to achieve what you see in the film. I, I think that's amazing. Thank you for that breakdown because 
I know myself, I had questions around what was the difference in separation between all of the different roles. I mean, Ray, what do you think kind of was, what, what do you think kind of flipped for you as it relates to you were doing these roles and then you were basically like, this is, this is the one, this is, this is where I, I feel like I shine the most. What, what was it in your opinion that, that really kind of made you lock in and, and as far as the director role? In particular with King Richard or? Just or, it, it, over your short film, over yeah, Monsters I mean, and I Men. Started, I, mean, where, I started, when I started, I was like, okay. I started with performance. That was really the thing that I felt personally I'd love to see when I went to the movies. So I had favorite actors, Denzel and uh, De Niro and Pacino and uh you know portier and i, I you know uh i mean so so many to name and, and not to exclude any meryl street uh viola and i just love performances and so when i started in my of course i wanted that denzel performance you know i wanted i wanted to like you know get that that performance and i was less i think i'm a visual person but i was less focused on the visual elements of the movie because i was more focused on really just getting good, crafting good performances. And now that I've made a few movies, I've, I feel like I have a handle on that. And I'm now adding, um, I'm putting more emphasis in the other areas of the visual storytelling in, in terms of moving the camera, in terms of costume design, wardrobe, uh production design and all of those things really work in concert to help performance and i guess the way i would look at it is that it is they're all the same in that they all help the the storytelling aspects of the movie and there should be no weak links and you can't necessarily you can't just necessarily have a fastball and win a game you really need to focus on these other departments in order to feel, you know, to, in order to feel all the things that you feel in the movie, to have a really full, rich, emotional experience, you have to care about those things. And as I started making my short films, I started to spend more time honing in on those other, you know, on those other areas that I felt like I didn't focus on very early on in my filmmaking career. And look, as I started making movies, you make them with no money. So you make them with the resources that you have available to you. And so we didn't have dollies, we didn't have cranes. So we didn't learn on those tools. We didn't have sound stages. So we didn't learn on those in, in, those, play, in those locations. And so as the budgets have grown, the toys have grown, but there's no use in a toy if you don't know how to use it. And so it sometimes it takes a partnership with a DP that has experience using cranes and Steadicam in a way that can enhance the fil filmmaking process. And on King Richard, I was working with one of the best cinematographers in the world, uh, arguably one of the greatest cinematographers of all time, Robert Ellswit, who won an Oscar for There Will Be there will be blood um, but he shot some of my favorite movies um, in terms of boogie nights or magnolia uh there will be blood um 
the town, Punch Drunk Love. Like he has been um, making movies for 30 plus years um, and his film language is remarkable. And so, you know, I was gaining access to someone that basically under, you know, it's like watching a Western and these guys have these weapons and he knows how to use the weapons. Like, it's just like, it's, it's amazing to watch somebody that wears a camera. Like it's like the way I would wear a baseball glove that it fits him as if it's second nature. The, 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 the camera is just an extension of his own, of his arm as it's almost as if it's part of him. And so to be able to work with somebody on that level now, with costumes, Sharon Davis, who, you know, had worked on 30 plus movies in costumes, um, won an Oscar herself, uh, incredible um, costume designer, Wynn Thomas, who did Malcolm X um, and Kirkland and a number of huge movies, um, Cinderella Man, uh, one, of, one of the most prolific production designers to ever do it, a brother. You know, so it, 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 I had a lot of experience at my disposal for this film. They were people whose work I knew and admired and then sought after because I thought their expertise could help me in my play calling. And again, going back to a football analogy, I had my offensive coordinator in Robert Ellsworth. I had my defensive coordinator in Wynn Thomas. And so those two were sort of working in tandem so that we can drive the ball and put up points and keep the de defenses from <laughs> sacking me, the quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you mentioned that Will Smith was already attached to the, he had already signed on to the project before you came on. So how did you get the job? I mean, you know, how did, you know, what was it about you that made Will Smith and Tim White and whoever else was involved in saying yes to put you on the project? That I can't answer other than, you know, I think I did all of the steps to get the job. I went to film school. I made my first movie, Monsters and Men. It won a jury prize at Sundance. Mm -hmm. I made my sophomore movie with Mark Wahlberg. Um, I was in the right place at the right time. My personal story is very much aligned with the underlying message of this movie. It's about a pa like parents that are taking care of their kids and raising champions in a way that they're giving them love. You know, they're not doing it in the opposite way. They're doing it with love and care. I had a father that did that for me and my brother. So my personal experience, I think lined up. Um, I think my, um, my passion for filmmaking, um, I definitely, you know, obviously I talked about the films that inspired me from Boys in the Hood to Moneyball and how tonally I felt our film fit in a pocket similar, um, but also was unique. Um, when I first got the script by Zach Balin, uh, congrats to him on his Academy Award nomination. Um, it was amazing. It was a great script. It, it focused on the perfect window, I thought, into the family's life. But the aspects that I thought I could enhance were the family aspects. 
um, the Compton aspects of the film that I felt like needed a real voice and a layer and if handled the wrong way could be problematic. And so I talked about those things in my interview with Will. I can speak to, you know, how I wanted to lens us in the community. How I wanted to have police presence, but for it not to be in your face. How I wanted to show gang violence, but not in the way that we would see it, that we would see it through the, you know, through the protagonist's perspective, not necessarily just for the purposes of having violence in the movie. You know, everything is very specific in the film. We show a family's journey and it's all through their eyes and their experience. They were insulated. And it doesn't mean that it wasn't happening around them, but it, the, the way it happened was very different for them than it might've been for other people. They weren't in the drug game. So we didn't. that's not something that we needed to see. You know, maybe another filmmaker will cut to the broken glass on the court. You know, in my opinion, it's better to just hear it. Um, you know, maybe another filmmaker would do it another way. But in my opinion, it was, this is how I wanted to handle in this film. And so I could talk to the producers, I can talk to the studio and I could talk to Will about that. I could also talk about my experience in casting movies. Uh, Monsters and Men is a perfect example, right? Um, Anthony Ramos uh, went on to In the Heights and now he's Transformers. Um, John David Washington uh, went on to become Tenet. Um, you know, Kelvin Harrison Jr. is now Cyrano and Basquiat. And so, I mean, Nicole Bahari, uh, you know, Shante Adams. I mean, these are killers and they were in my tiny movie. And I think people can go back to that first film and be like, man, all of those guys crushed it. So it's not an accident. I can talk about how I see building a team. You know, I can bring the idea of someone like John Bernthal, who no one's thinking about, right? He's against type. And I could say, that guy's special and he can be Rick Macy. And I can convince the producers that I'm right. Trust me. And I think if, if, if you have that conviction in, in yourself and your belief, and I have the proof in the pudding, sort of, then there's no reason to doubt that. And... Look, as you guys know, age is relative, right? I mean, you know, what Sean McVay just won his first championship. He's 35 years old, uh, LA Rams. So, you, you know, it's not common, but it's, it's, it's not unheard of. And um, so I think I could say all those things and I could look Will in the eye and we could have a man-to-man -man conversation. He could either believe me or not. And it also comes down to who else was in the pile. I don't know. I don't know what other directors had the that type of experience, who grew up athletes, who knew what it was like to literally have professional tryouts, um, to have lived a third of their lives playing a sport so much that you know it was part of who they are. I mean, I, I mean, I can't even have a regular conversation without talking in metaphor about sports, and it's uh, it's <laughs> it's clearly part of who I am and and part of my journey, and it's hard because it's how I've experienced life in a lot of ways, and so you know I think it was a good fit for this particular movie, um, and I think obviously they they saw that in me and and, and gave me the job.
Well, I think for me, just in the limited amount of time that we've spoken thus far, it's a level of energy that you exude just in the way that you speak. I mean, it's, I, I am so engaged right now. And it's literally, I mean, seriously. I don't know, man. It's, I hope so. We're doing a Zoom. <laughs> I mean, man, Ray, I, I, like I said, you are, you, 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 there's just an energy that comes off of you, that level of confidence. It's, 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 it's again, some people have those little X factor things. And I can definitely see why that shown through or, or or why they caught that uh in this whole deal um so i just wanted to throw that out oh, th well thank you I, I appreciate that and and look i think you know this is post king richard with six nominations so maybe there a little bit more confidence went in now than it, than it was then but you know no look I, I think i've always remained a pretty pretty straightforward person and and i don't require a lot to be happy I still eat peanut butter and tuna fish, you know, still a, of, still a little bit of that edge to me. And I hope I never goes away. And, and I think there's just something about where you grow up and where you're from and how you're raised um, to always keep your feet on the ground. And I, and I, and I try to just keep that approach and never get too up about anything. And I try not to get too down about stuff. And, and I think just keeping it even, you know, has gotten me through the tough times because it's not, it's not easy. It's not easy working at certain levels and, and, and trying to make everybody happy and trying to pull, pull it all together. Yeah. There were, there were tough times and we got through them and, and look, it was not a, it was not a cakewalk by any means. And I was tested, I was battle tested and, and, um, and I was up for the challenge. You know, part of that is, is being willing to take that journey. And I think a lot of folks want to, and then they get there and it's scary it's scary to fail. And um, that a lot of people don't want to face that failure and aren't right. willing to do it because it's the fall is tough. And look, I don't want to fail. It's not, I definitely don't go into any situation wanting to do it, but you have to be willing to, you have to be willing to lose that match at the end of the, at the end of the game, because it's not about the one game. That's the whole point of the movie, right? It's not about, she won at life because she was not afraid to lose. Right. I think right. ultimately that's, that's the crux of the movie. And that's how I try to try to be every day is like, I can't be afraid to get Bob Marley wrong. Look, he's perfect, right? Like that's what I'm doing next. Like how do you, can't ever top that. But like, I got to make the movie and I've got to top it in my head, and I've got to get it right, and I've got to do the best I can to honor their family. And I think that approach is like, look, yeah, that's probably dynamite for a lot of other people. Stay away. Can't do it. Well, maybe you can, and maybe you can do it great. Maybe you can do it in a way that, that other generations can learn about his music and his message. And I think, look, that's the approach that I think, you know, you have to be a little crazy to do what we do you know nobody wants to get hit by linemen running at you right <laughs> Aaron Donald running at me all day and I'm trying not to get sacked but if I think about myself like Patrick Mahomes I ain't worried about no Aaron Aaron, McDon Aaron Donald you know, get out the pocket I'm a scramble I'll throw I, you know I, I have a lot of skills hopefully now I've, I'm, I'm developing the skills to face those challenges more and more and that's part of, uh, I guess it's just part of growing up more than it is, you know, anything to do with filmmaking. Well, I'll tell you a question. 
that I have that I, I, I knew I was burning to ask you this sometime in this interview. Now, you said you didn't come from a tennis background. You know, I did. I grew up in the sport of tennis. I've been watching the Williams family story since it started. Um, and I must admit, when I first heard about the movie and I was like, okay, this is good. And then I heard Will Smith was playing Richard. I was like, they just gonna grab any black guy, huh? Because, <laughs> you know, in, in my mind, as much as I respect Will as an actor, I'm thinking about the physical appearance. So I'm thinking about somebody like, uh, who's the British actor that I love? Idris uh, Elba. Idris Elba, I'm thinking, okay, he would be perfect for this role. I said, I understand Will Smith is box office and all that, but, oh, I don't know. So my question to you is, obviously Will Smith nailed it. Uh, we were blown away equally by Anjanou Ellis and all the subtleties of Orsine that she picked up. How did you, you know, get capture the essence of the Williams family uh, working with Venus and Serena and, and being able to portray them so accurately in terms of what we have always perceived them to be? I, I think it was a lot of discussions with the family uh, in prep. And prep is everything, as you know, if, if for any tournament, for anything. Like we had a pretty full preseason and we had a lot of prep and we had access. Isha Price is the producer on the film. And so she facilitated meetings with myself, the writer, Zach, uh, Tim, um, for us to meet Serena, uh, Venus, Orisine in, in prep. And we got face-to-face -face time uh, with all of them. And we asked them every question that we, you know, to try to fill in the blanks of things that we didn't know based on the script that Zach had written. And so that's how we first started, was really just getting stories and hearing their perspective of their relationships and sort of the inner workings of the family and how close they are. And, and, and stories like all of the girls were picking up balls and wait, so your, your oldest sister was picking up the balls and wait, that's crazy. So like all of those, like the whole family aspect of the movie really started to flush itself out once we were in prep. And so Zach and I can then go back into the script and say, hey, this is all really, really juicy stuff. And like the family needs to be a little bit more involved here. Like this is not just a Venus Serena or even a, even a Will thing. This is a full family affair. And so the bus became a character and how we get the girls in the bus and how we get them out. And they call it the bus. You know, how we get them in the bus? How do we get them out of the bus? Uh, how, they pick up balls. They hang signs. And it, and, it, and it added this other dimension to the Williams family that we as audience members, people that even followed them probably didn't know. They didn't know how close this family was, you know, they, and, and, and how tight knit and how many of them there were. And wow, they slept in one, you know, like Serena didn't have a bed and she would go from one sister's bed to the other, like all these the, all the flavor of the film really came out from the conversations with the family. And so they were instrumental in telling us these stories. Now, they weren't saying we want them in the movie, but I was like, well, we need to put it in the movie. And, 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 
And so for me, I was like a kid in the candy store. Every story that I heard, every story that we heard, we could then try to find a way to put it in, into the movie. And so sometimes it was a character detail. Sometimes it was just a, a principle, you know, and I'll give you an example. When I sat with Venus, one of the first things she said was, you know, Serena is the kind of sister that would skip a match to see me practice. Now, I couldn't add a scene to the movie to show that, but, but what we could do is show the sentiment of two sisters that love each other and have an unbreakable bond. That for dramatic licenses, I wasn't going to tear the family apart, you know, and show them competing against each other because it would make for good drama. And so those were the things that were important to me as a filmmaker to honor for the family to say, hey, okay, I still have to make a movie. I do have to take certain licenses because it's a two and a half hour movie and that's already long. I have to like make a movie and I have to make it enjoyable for audiences. So there are certain things that I have to make cinematic. Yes, I understand that conversation may have happened in the bedroom, but it's much more cinematic if it happens on the tennis court. With Will and on with Will and Sanaya looking at each other. Now, did it happen? Yes, the conversation happened. Did it happen there? Absolutely not. And so I think for me, it was important to sort of talk to the family, discuss cinematically how I wanted to achieve the authenticity of what their experience was and how we can give an authentic experience to an audience while still you know, taking certain liberties in the filmmaking process. If, you, if you're fans, you may have known about the final match, but that didn't happen in an open air arena with 7,000 people. Like that just didn't happen. Those tournaments don't ever go to that level. But for our movie and for a movie experience, it's pretty darn incredible to experience it that way. It's rocky, it's rooty, it's magical. And, and, and I can say, hey, guys, let's take it out of this dinky little, you know, tennis arena. You know, I know that that's what you guys do in juniors and stuff, but not, like, <laughs> I don't follow tennis and I want to see something big, you know, at the end of the movie. Right. And so, you know, I could add a, a visual language to the movie. I could add some, some scale and scope and size and, and look, everybody was on board. Of course, look, you have a movie star, you have to make it big and you have to make it fit for him so that it doesn't feel like he's he himself has to carry the whole weight of the film and so to answer your question the family was instrumental in really facilitating those meetings um early on and then isha obviously remained on set throughout the entire process Lindre Lindrea price is also a uh, a wardrober on the film so they could tell us what oh i would wear this and she would wear that and those are the colors that she had even though no one knows, it's subconscious. It's the things that you feel when you're watching a movie. You feel that you believe that they were wearing that. And that's all you need to know as the audience member. For me, it's the more specific we can be, the more universal the story becomes. And that's what I'm trying to achieve as a filmmaker, right? In the process of making the movie is getting it to be as authentic as we possibly can so that you can feel that when you're watching the movie. Right. And Ray, talk to us just about, you know, with that authenticity, what were some of the challenges that basically you kind of had to work through 
in you know in 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 you know bringing the film to life what were some of the the things that you had to deal with of course we know this the production of this went through covid so i can only imagine there were little things well not little but things like that that kind of uh kind of impacted impacted you but i'm curious what were some of the other challenges that you you faced uh in this journey yeah i mean i, I think the most obvious challenge is, is just getting their story right um you know uh to to everybody knows who Venus and Serena are and there's a lot of pressure that comes with telling their story in a way that feels unique and fresh and interesting and to get people to care and so that was that was big was sort of that was the big sort of overarching thing that I think the whole cast and crew felt they felt the pressure to get it right and so I think, you know, that was our guiding light that, that, that we were certainly, you know, trying to do the family justice, but also, you know, while, while, while making a movie, not trying to sugarcoat things and, and trying to tell some difficult truths sometimes about, about family members. That's always hard when you're doing a biopic. So there is that, there is aspect. And of course, look, you know, there is Will Smith. He's a, he's a mega global superstar. Um, and, uh, you know, making sure that he's happy and that your star player is getting what they need. And, you know, look, it's, it's, it's repetition. That's, that's what I would call it. It, it, it's, it was prep was paramount for us because it allowed time for him and I to get reps together. So if you think about me as like the quarterback and Will is like my wide receiver as my main target, I have to target him a certain amount of times per game and if he's not getting those targets he ain't gonna be that happy right. <laughs> so right. you know but a star player will make star plays when the when the game is on the line and when it counts and so it's important for us to just have gotten those reps and for us in our language it's it's doing script sessions breakout sessions sitting down with the script um really analyzing each scene scene by scene emotional like every line has an emotional meaning what does it mean what are we saying cut this out don't say this word and really scrutinizing the process of making the movie and and will was such a great partner i mean i had someone that was willing to do that work that wanted to do that work and i think that's honestly true of any team any great film there has to be a, a certain level of talent and skill, and then it has to be met with a desire to be great. And I think Will had that desire. He had that desire. And, and, and it was just up to me to make sure that I kept that desire alive. And if you're losing, you lose desire. If you're not, you're not on the winning side of every day, you start to feel like, ah, this team ain't going to really get me there. So it was up to me to really in, make him feel like we were gonna win Wimbledon, you know, that we were on track, that we were doing all the right things, that the cast was building in the way that it did, that, you know, that my team was building in the way that it did. And I think the confidence really started to grow with Will and myself. And so by the time we started playing, you know, I think there was just a comfort level, you know, I was, I was, you know, not getting cocky, but I was, you know, I was, I was hitting my receiver in the hands and he was catching the ball. 
And even when I threw it a little bit behind him, he was catching the ball. So, you know, he definitely helped me in a lot of ways, right? He's not only an actor on the film, he's a producer. And when things get tough, you know, I could go to Will the producer, not Will the actor. Hey, we're not talking about performance here, but we need more time to get this scene because it's only gonna help you, Will the actor. And so I could have that conversation with Will, like, take the take the the you know take the richard hat off for a second and let's talk as producer and and i just had a i had a really great partner in that process and and that was you know that's everything that's everything look ingenue ellis and all the girls in the film and john birth they they all deserve tremendous credit because they did their jobs exceptionally um i can't say enough about what they gave to this film, you know, for Sanai and Demi to be as young as they were and to be performing uh, at the level that they were, never having played tennis in their lives, to learn how to hold rackets and do movement. I'm sure you talked to Tim about that. You know, these girls really went through the ringer and they did a tremendous job. But I always said to Tim very early on, I'm not looking for tennis players. I'm looking for actors who, who can embody a tennis player because it's less important. This movie's not about tennis, in my humble opinion. I hope the tennis looks spectacular. And, you know, but, I, but it's not about tennis. Tennis is the means in which they, they support themselves. It is, it is what they do in the film, but it's not what they are defined by. Um, and that was more important, the definition of this family, the definition of who they are as people. Um, and tennis, of course, is a huge component of that, but it is not the component. And, um, and I didn't want the focus to be about, um, you know, about things that were less important. So the tennis is really more narrative in, in its construction. It's about Richard giving the girls open stance or, you know, the sentiment that Richard goes through while he's watching his daughters, you know, during juniors. And yes, you have to get the tennis right in order to do that. But the tennis really serves the emotional structure of the movie. And so it never feels like an addendum to the storytelling. It only feels like part of the fabric of the of this of of the storytelling. And so, you know, that's that's how I wanted to approach the tennis in the film. That's why there's no announcers in the final match which is like unheard of in sports movies, but it was a challenge for me. And because I didn't want it to feel like a traditional sports film. I love sports movies and I, and I Rocky Rudy, all of those movies are, are, are amazing, but that's not what this movie is. This movie is far, you know, you know, it, it sits in, in its own, um, in its own space. And, and I, and I didn't want to rely on sort of the voice of two announcers that we've never seen before in the movie to tell me the emotion of, and I said, well, that's me getting into the granular, you know, granular tennis that no one really needs to know, know, know about. If my mom is watching this and never seen a tennis match, she's going to understand winning and losing. Right. Well, I think what's so brilliant about what you did is it wasn't even something that most recognized. It wasn't something that I truly recognize, honestly. Um, so that goes to just how well uh, it was done. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, and in addition to how well the tennis reenactments were done, 
Uh, let's talk a little bit about award season. I mean, the film has been doing an amazing job in terms of racking up nominations across a variety of uh, awards. Um, now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to a little different question that you may think I'm going. So I'm looking at the Academy Awards, right? And you've described to us the role of a director, the responsibilities of what the director has for the film. So if you have a film where the screenwriter and the actor and the editing and you know all of this is being nominated, talk to me then. Were you feeling a certain kind of way about not getting nominated for Best Director for the Academy Award? With no, all of your components? No, no, no. I mean, look, first of all, to, to have any, any nomination for any film is remarkable. So I'll just start there. To me, we are at the Super Bowl, 150%. We are there. We have a seat at the table. We are the table. Like, it's amazing. So that in and of itself is already a giant victory. Every distinction, I don't know, Aaron Donald's name didn't get named MVP of, uh, of the Super Bowl, right? It went to Cooper Cup. And yeah, some people feel like he was deserving of that. And and rightfully so. The guy made more receptions than anybody else. Like, sometimes when it comes to that, there's a finite amount of positions <laughs> that you can give. Um, in directing, there's five. It's the toughest category to get nominated for. And you're also, as you know, in all these nominations, you know, you're, you're, it's sometimes it's a body of work. Sometimes it's people getting to know who you are. You know, this might be the first film that anybody knows my name. You know, uh, they're just getting to know me, you know? So for some people, this might feel like my first film. Who knows? It, it, there's, there's no necessarily, necessarily like a rhyme or reason to it. Um, Denis Villeneuve had 10 Oscar nominations for Dune and didn't get nominated for best director. <laughs> You know, um, you know, Ridley Scott made two movies this year from Gucci to The Last Duel and didn't get nominated for Best Director. Um, I don't think it takes anything away from those directors. Guillermo del Toro is one of the best directors alive. Like he didn't get nominated for Best Director. Like I, I think there's a lot of other factors that go into how they select those categories for that year and how they spread out love through the different categories, you know, and directing wasn't that this year, but, you know, maybe it's the year that people are on notice, you know, okay, cool. You know, we see you brother. Okay. We see you. We see you. <laughs> we see you. And, and that's cool. Like to me, look, yes. Would it have been like a nice little, like, yeah, of course, mom, check that out. That's pretty cool. Um, I would have had a guaranteed seat at the Oscars versus a, a, an invite. <laughs> you know, that would have been cool. Um, but man, I'm so happy for everybody involved, man. You got Pamela Martin, uh, who's put 30 years into this industry and, and, and gets her ticket. You got Zach Balin, who essentially was wrote this script on, on spec it was his original conceit. I mean, I didn't come up with this story. He came up with this story. Like, I don't, you know, as a best original screenplay, 
I, yeah, I see it, you know, like it's it, to me, you know, and, and so I, I totally get it. Will Smith delivers arguably one of the best performances of his career, if not the best. According to SAG and the Golden Globe, they feel like it's the best. So I see it. Anjanu Ellis tears the freaking roof off in this film. I see it, you know, and I see our film up there amongst the films that were made this year. And so, you know, and then look, Beyonce on anything. <laughs> yeah, you know, so I, I get it. Look, we could go across the board, you know, again, when I think about Robert Ellswit, who shot the film and Sharon Davis, who did costumes and Carla Farmer, who did hair and makeup, who, you know, you have a Wynn Thomas production design, you have Chris Bauer's music. We think about all those departments and none of them got that particular, but that doesn't mean that they weren't deserving of it. It wasn't their year. And so I don't think anybody's necessarily like, ah, man, you know, like, yeah, look, we're, we're, we're rooting for each other. And, and this is a huge victory for our film. Uh, the fact that I would even be talking about a nomination is already insane <laughs> to me. You know, I just finished film school and, you know, six years ago. So it's it's remarkable to be in this conversation. It's remarkable to have directed Will Smith and Anjanu Ellis to their, you know, to Will's third nomination and, and Anjanu's first. You know, I feel very much a part of that conversation. Um, it feels very special to me. Um, and I'll just work harder to make sure that my name will be called at some point in the future. You know, I'm here for... I'm here for a long time. So, you know, unless they get rid of me, you know, I'll, I'll be here. Hopefully, hopefully uh, stay at the top, man. I want a seat at the table. There you go, man. Well, they see you now. They see you. They, they <laughs> they see nobody us. has we any excuse. We out here. We put them on notice. We put them on notice. <laughs> so, Ray, talk to us, man. What? Talk to us about what's next for you. I mean, I know that you mentioned Bob Marley. Um, what are some of the other things that, that you're looking into? Could there perhaps be a Ronaldo, Rashad, you know, join up, bang up, brother? I mean, that's, that's you the know? ultimate goal, yes. The <laughs> ultimate goal, my brother and I will, will actually make a, make a film together. And, and uh, you know, our, our schedules have to align up. He's a very busy man and, and we got to find the right project together. But yeah, that, that would be a dream for me to, to, and an honor to obviously to, to, to make a movie with my brother, uh, for sure. So hopefully that's in the future. Um, I finished an HBO series after King Richard, I directed an HBO series called We Own This City with David Simon and George Pelicanos. So if you've seen The Wire, they are back in Baltimore 20 years later uh, with this limited series. And it's starring John Bernthal, who plays Eric Macy. Um, and he plays the leader of a, of a um, of the gun trace task force, which was a division within the Baltimore city police that essentially went rogue. Um, I would liken it to like training day with 12 officers, you know, and they're, you know, this, this, this group that essentially in the wake of Freddie Gray 
had carte blanche on the city and essentially criminalized, um, you know, victimized uh, victims all over the city of Baltimore. And so there were corrupt cops, that, but it wasn't just the cops. It was the system that was broken. And I think that's what David and George do so well in their writing is, is really tackle these issues in a way that feel layered and nuanced and really get to the source and, and to, you know, to all the different facets of, of, of what has gone wrong with the war on drugs. And so that's what the film come. Uh, the I call it a film because I treated it like a film. Uh, but it is. Uh, it's going to come out in April on HBO. So look out for it. I think they're dropping the trailer next week. And then yeah, I'm in prep on uh, Bob Marley. We cast uh, Kingsley Benadir to play one. Uh, play the older version of Bob uh, Kingsley. Played Malcolm X in um in uh, One Night in Miami by Ken Powers uh, and Regina King. Um, so he's, he's one to look out for. I mean, with a name like Kingsley Benadir, he do better be a star, right? (laughs) you know, but I I have high hopes for, for the brother. He's, he's a really talented guy. And, and I think he's going to bring, I think he's going to really bring the, bring the roof down on this one in, in, in a good way. So, um, that's next. We'll see. I'm reading lots of material. I'm developing my own and, and lots of good things in the pipeline, but it's only up and it's only telling our stories and it's only, uh, you know, trying to trying to put us out there in ways that we haven't seen ourselves before. So trying to always push the envelope cinematically in ways that I can. Um, and, you know, that's what I'm going to continue to do. Well, look, you can definitely count us as new fans <laughs> and we will be following for sure. Uh, I appreciate that, Jets. I appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. And I tell you what, our listeners are going to get so much out of this interview. I mean, this really felt like a peek behind the curtain and understanding, you know, what really happened with the film. And so just congratulations, man, to you and everything. Thank you so much. You guys are having. I really appreciate it. Got my email. Let's keep in touch. And yeah, yeah. What is safe in the next month or so? We'll we'll grab a meal or something. That that sounds good. I like that. any final words you got for our listeners or our guests before we get out of here? No, man. Just uh, thank you, Ray, once again for giving us the time, bro. We look forward to collaborating with you more in the future, bro. Just Bye. really Bye. congratulations. Thank you, fellas. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. All right. So, all right. So have a good one. Take care now. Okay. Right. Bye bye. And there you go, people. That was Ronaldo Marcus Green, director of the King Richard film, giving you all the scoop behind the scenes on how that film was made. And we are definitely having our fingers crossed for all the success that they can have. And, and not only the Academy Awards, but just there are a bunch of awards, different award shows that they have nominations in. So we are we are hoping that they walk away with all the bags, right? <laughs> From those. So, well... Isaac, this has been a great series that we've had, and hopefully the listeners have really enjoyed it. But this is what we do, right? It's what we do. Come on. (laughs) All right. So remember, people, stay tuned with us. We have more good stuff coming to you this year, and we are going to sign off. So on behalf of the podcast, this has been your boy, Bryce. And this is your boy, Isaac. And we are Brothers on Tennis. Everyone, be good.